London National Park City is a large-scale and long-term movement to make London greener, healthier and wilder through a range of projects which, when combined, are impactful, inspirational and have potential to drive huge change across the capital. These projects are driven by a growing and diverse collaborative network of individuals, groups, organisations, partners, communities, businesses and so much more. In July of this year, 2021, we'll be celebrating two years since the London Mayor awarded London its status as a national park city, the first in the world. London National Park City is a way to rethink our relationship with nature and the expectations we share for our urban habitats. Most importantly, it's about taking actions that result in a better quality of life for people and for wildlife. My name is Emily Langston, and as well as working at Facebook, I am a volunteer ranger for London National Park City. The rangers are a network of passionate people with a wide range of experiences and talents. Together, we'll help make London greener, healthier and wilder, contributing to our shared vision to make London a city where people, places and nature are better connected. Rangers work in their local communities and across the capital on projects to tackle the climate and ecological crises, scaling greening initiatives and conservation activities. We've just onboarded our second cohort of rangers, meaning there are 110 of us volunteering across London. So hello everyone, um, this is the first episode of the Regrowth Project. Um, so this is a three-part podcast series hosted by the London National Park City Movement for Earth Week. Um, so the aim of the whole series is to inspire ideas and thinking about regrowth as we come out of lockdown. So looking back to the year that we've had, uh, thinking about shifts in behaviour and perceptions and inspiring action in how we approach the future. Um, so welcome everyone, uh, it's such a joy to have you here. Um, so before I explain what this episode is about, um, I'd love it if you could introduce yourselves. Um, so we'll start with Bruce and go in alphabetical order if that's okay. Hey, uh, yeah, I'm Bruce, Bruce Parry. I'm, uh, a, I guess I'm a documentary maker, that's how I'm best known. I used to work with the BBC many, for many years, making documentaries about Indigenous people and a series about climate change and globalisation. And I quit TV and, and entered the feature film industry, made a feature film, which took me 10 years, all about reconnecting to nature um, and kind of how uh, we've changed over time, uh, and especially around social organisations and egalitarianism and things like that. Uh, and now I've moved to Wales and sort of uh, in a remote little valley trying to live by what I've learned, uh, uh, sort of crofting, small-scale, localised uh, kind of lifestyle connecting to the land and that's that's me i think i am next in the alphabetical order if i'm not mistaken um my name is charmian love but everybody calls me char uh and actually bruce just while you were speaking um i was really kind of feeling this idea of the remote valleys and and being connected to land and to nature I'm from Canada originally, um, and I, I feel like I grew up swimming in beautiful clear lakes and with the smell of pine cones in my nose and pine trees. So I don't know, I just had a moment when you were describing where you are feeling that. Um, I'm, I'm not in the green spaces of, uh, of the countryside. I'm, I'm actually coming in from London. Um, 
not too far away from some beautiful commons. Uh, so I, I certainly try and enjoy that sunshine on my shoulders where, wherever and however I can. Um, so I uh, come to this conversation actually with a few different hats. Um, one of them is in as being a part of the B Corp movement, the global B Corp movement. And uh, I have the great pleasure of, of having co-founded B Lab UK. Um, I've recently moved into a new role as an activist in residence at B Lab UK. Um, uh, I also co-chair B Lab's global climate task force. I'm, I'm happy to share a little bit more about B Corps for those that are interested as, as part of this conversation. Um, but I also am really um, fascinated by what's happening um, with young people right now. So I do spend quite a bit of my time virtually now at Oxford University, where I teach an MBA elective uh, on regenerative economics, the regenerative and circular economy, how to do business in a climate emergency. And I'm just, I, I find myself full of hope um, when, when getting the chance to connect and engage with sort of some brilliant students. Um, I also really believe that accountants will save the world um, because I really have a lot of respect for uh, that profession. And, uh, and I, I feel like um, that's something hopefully we, we can have some, a chance to talk a little bit about today as well. Hi, um, my name's Indy. Um, uh, I'm I'm a uh, I'm a director and co-founder of Dark Matter Labs, and I suppose what I'm really I've, I trained as an architect, and what I started to realise we built stuff like WikiHouse, open source housing, open desk, open source furniture company, um, social impact funds. We put two together, um, but what I started to realise was that underneath all these surface gadgets there was actually a structural issue, which, as Shah just eloquently said, is actually the dark matter problem. And I think we're in the middle of a dark matter crisis of how we've constructed our relationship with the world. And that's just not a metaphysical relationship. It's also hardwired into our institutions. So the fact that a tree is seen as a liability or at best a value in timber in our accounting thesis actually constructs the economic constructs of the world we live in. And so that, you know, that became really manifest for me. I stepped off about 2014, 15, most of the boards I was on, and, and I just wanted to build, started to solve problems of that layer. And that's really what we were doing. We're now a 45-person team and growing, uh, really focused all around the planet, uh, not-for-profit based, based from the UK, but operating through Holland. And we've got a, a global team literally just focused on this issue. And that's why I'm super excited about this sort of conversation, because I think that's the scale of change I think we're looking at um, with a lot of sober, soberness. And it's 500 years worth of viewpoints which have been crystallized into our institutions. And those, in, those crystallizations are firm, fundamentally self-terminating us now. They were useful, but they now become self-terminating for all of us as a global civilization. It's my mild provocation for the conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so the theme of today is, is reimagine. Um, so reimagining a new world that could emerge as we come out of lockdown and return to some form of normality, I guess, with, with speech marks there. Um, so I wanted to open the floor to discuss this theme, thinking about things like uh, what have been some of the biggest shifts in behaviours and perceptions in the last year across all levels of society and business and communities and everything that you all have backgrounds in. Um, has the pandemic fast-tracked the need to reimagine our societal structures and tackle inequality? And has it added urgency to the climate crisis? And as you talk, are there any kind of concrete examples of change 
that has happened or is happening or could potentially happen. Um, so I'll, I'll pass over to you three to, to take it away. It's a, it's a hard, a hard question to sort of jump right in on. I think there's actually quite a few things that you, uh, you posed in that. Um, and maybe I'll, uh, instead of trying to, to address the specific questions, maybe if I may, I just love to share just a, a, a reflection, two quick reflections, actually. One is that um, in this, this last extraordinary year that we've um, experienced at a global level, um, one of the things that I've been reflecting a lot on is this, this recognition we all breathe the same air. Right, and and that's become more clear than ever. Um, we are all interdependent, and we are all connected. And this year has shown how that that how that has emerged. Um, and and I think we we need to find ways of really holding that and leaning into this this interconnectivity, this interdependence, um, and 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 using that to really think about what looks what this looks like on the other side. I remember very early on in, in the pandemic, there was a beautiful essay by Aaron Duddy Roy in the FT, um, which is really worth reflecting on uh, and, and maybe adding as sort of like a podcast note. Um, and what I really remember in this line is this, this, this idea that this is a portal, the pandemic is a portal, and it's a, an opportunity just to, to walk through it and, and to reimagine um, what could be. And so if we walk through that portal with that sense of interconnectivity, interdependence, we are all breathing the same air. Um, then, then I, I feel like that can, creates the conditions for reimagination. Um, and I try not to use the word but, so I'm going to use the word and. And <laughs> I also think we have to deeply ground ourselves in the recognition that the experiences that ha people have had in communities and countries and families um, is is not homogeneous. I mean, there there have been massive differences in levels of suffering, of fear, of stress, and I think that's really surfaced a lot of privilege. Um, that that exists. Um, so I, I I think in recognizing we all breathe the same air, we also need to recognize that our systems that are set up right now um, have have created conditions where there are very different experiences that people have lived through from the last year, and and we should we should again hold that as we think about reimagining and rebuilding what comes next. Yeah, beautiful, Shard. Um, I'd like to just follow on from that. I, I totally agree. Uh, I love the word interdependence and I love obviously the idea of us being more and more connected as we have done over the last uh, centuries. But of course, alongside interconnectivity comes a level of um, uh, fragility almost. It's like if we become too dependent on each other that, and there's no self-sufficiency, then we, we can have some of the problems that, um, that we've already seen in just things like PPE. Uh, and that can go all the way down into food security and all the rest of it. So alongside this connection at the top level, I think also has to be a reimagining of how we can be also more locally dependent and locally connected. Uh, and both of those things shouldn't, um, you know, they, they shouldn't prioritize one or the other, that they, they, they're both equal, I think. Um, yeah, I think, I think these are really, um, so I think, I think the, where I sit on this is that, at the same time, as we need to recognize our interdependence, actually what we're seeing is the reinforcement of trying to build independence. And so there's a kind of interesting, and as our material economy becomes, I think, you know, I would argue that we're moving into an age of long emergencies. This is not going to be an age of abundance suddenly. I think we're moving into an age of long emergencies. This is 
probably one of many global crises that we will face. Certainly, if you look at the climate data, we're, we're facing 3.2, 3.3 degrees. We're not facing 1.5, 1.4. Um, and if you look at that, that means hundreds of millions of people on the move, uh, certainly at the global level. So on one side, I think we have to recognize those systemic effects that we're now cascading, but also simultaneously recognize that the natural reaction of that system will be borders and boundaries, which is what we're already seeing. But to get to that thesis of thinking about interdependence requires a much higher level of thinking, a much higher level of political courage and cognition. And we are still locked into seeing a country as a boundary, not a country as a system. We're still locked into thinking the UK as a territory when it's actually not a territory, it's a global system. We're still locked into believing localism is the answer, when actually most of our material economy cannot be resolved at a local level. Most of this, the computers that we work on, the lights, the, even many of the things that we're talking about are part of global systems. So in a way, there's a kind of, there's a real challenge for us of how we want to go for autonomy, self-resilience, self, self and also recognizing our global systems. And I think that's a really powerful political challenge that we're in the middle of, which I think is really made difficult because I, I think we've been living in a world of psychological precarity. And that precarity was, an, I would argue, is a designed construct. You design precarity in order to allow people to be more effectively used in the economic market. So if you make people precarious, they're more easily instrumentalizable for the work that needs to be done in the market. And you can see that. You can see that in the discussions about whether people say, oh, you know, we want, you know, we should have welfare or not. You say, well, people will get lazy. You know, this is a co cognitive con conversation that we end up in. So in that, if you design precarity, and then you put in large-scale stresses on the system, actually what you create is a breeding ground for fear, and what you also create is a breeding ground for effectively, I would argue, short-termist responses. So the, the ability of society to think long and deep is actually currently a privilege for the few that have the wealth and the independence to be able to think through that lens as well. Whereas many people are actually locked into in the U.S. economy, where the stats are pretty obvious, 40% of the U.S. citizens are about one or two paychecks away from losing their house. 40% in a first world economy. So I think, I, I, I think the nuance in this is going to be really a really important, important challenge because I'm not sure it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of clean loop to a better world. I think we're going to have to transverse a bit of a valley and that valley is going to be challenging, and it will require us to be the best of us, which I think is going to be the other part of the challenge. I love that. I love that. Um, I love so much of what you've both just said. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm keen to, to jump in. Um, and actually, you used the word courage earlier, Indy, and that word is one that sort of is, it, I, I hold it quite close. Um, we have uh, a lot, some lines of poetry that we have has been passed down through uh, generations in our family. And the lines are, two things stand like stone, kindness in another's trouble and courage in your own. And this idea of kindness and courage, I think, are, are really interesting principles that I, I, uh, I know I'm holding quite closely. But I guess I have, I have a question based on what you've just shared. This idea of the 
precarity. But how would you, how do we then collectively harness the power that's needed to deconstruct that precarity? Like what what does that look like so that we can think more long term and be more connected to one another in a in a in a in a, in a strong and yeah, and, and I'm trying to think of what the words are that are not precarious, a strong and and um, a, 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 you know, yeah, with 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 what's needed in order to deconstruct these systems that are holding us back. Thank you. Well, yeah, I look forward to what what you have to say because that was directed very much at what you were talking about, Indy. And I, I guess I just wanted to 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 feed in as well um, to to be in agreement, really. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you 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 talked about. Um, in your introduction about trees and, and perception and, and you mentioned perception again in the second little chat. And I think that in many ways, this is what it does come down to. It's like, how are we, what are the stories we're telling each other and how are we actually perceiving each other in relation to each other and also to this environment and to the future that we're obviously going to be facing. And, um, and I think that the, the narratives that are peddled out by, the, the power bases and the, and the media that supports them uh, are all telling us stories that pretty much universally are inverse to the stories that we should be talking about now. Um, and and that comes in into the economic system, it comes into the political system, it comes into just basic narratives like more is better and, and more fame, more notoriety, more money, more goods, all of these things that we're on this treadmill towards are um, actually causing us harm individually and long-term for the future generations. And, uh, and I think that that's, you know, before, the, before anything else happens, we have to shake up this awareness. We're, we're all sort of on this conveyor belt towards some sort of mad future, um, and it is precarious. But it doesn't have to be that way. One of the greatest things that I learned um, in my journeys was that actually it's increasingly evident now that that for the vast majority of our time on the planet, we existed as very much in an egalitarian state. And that's not fully recognized, but it's becoming increasingly apparent and increasingly agreed upon that, uh, that literally we existed in a state without hierarchy and competition for the vast majority of our time on the planet. And that the humankind can do that. But back then we had a narrative that told us that that was the best way. And now we have a narrative that tells us that meritocracy is the best way. And if people earn billions while, every, while other people are collapsing, that that's okay because they've earned it, which is clearly nonsense. And so at, at every level of the story that we're telling each other, I think we need to have a reshake and, and, and a rethink and, um, so I just I, I just think that feeds in exactly to what you were what you were saying there, Indy, and I couldn't agree more. I, no, likewise. I, I mean, I, I you put so so much really good color on this. It is the stories we tell ourselves, but it's also on the basis of those stories we've constructed the rule system and, and the uh, the kind of structures of our I would say machine system just to, to reinforce those stories. And the precariousness for me, and I think it's really, it's a really good question. My, my, my worry is that it's so it's become so acceptable to talk about 
are so I think unless we can build a new the capacity for for deliberative long-term decision making in society unless we can wean ourselves off opinion mechanisms to deliberative mechanisms I think it's become very difficult and unless we can build I would say I would say stuff like a transition uh, income investment I think governments are going to have to do before a UBI a transition income investment where they're going to have to invest in building the psychological security of people and then use that as a ballast to allow us to make different decisions and I think this is a scale for democracies it's really important autocracies don't have to go down this route for, but for democracies to create a new social covenant we're going to have to build our collective capacities to do that. And that is not a loss. And why I say it's an investment is that actually what we're creating is the frameworks for, for a new human development thesis, which isn't about instrumentalization, which is post-instrumentalization, because you cannot buy care. You cannot buy kindness. You cannot buy creativity. You cannot buy these things. You think you can buy them, but you can't instrumentalize them. You can trade them, definitely, but you can't trade them of people that don't want to give it to you. These are intrinsic acts, and I think we should be more careful about what is the human economy, kindness, careness, and these are not soft things. They are the foundations of the next economy in an age of automation. So this, for me, is not a sort of like, okay, we all believe in kindness and careness, and that's the only way. It's actually a deep response to the nature of the world we're moving into. And recognizing that treating humans as bad robots was the age that we lived in, but isn't the age that we're going to live in. And I think this is a socioeconomic transition, which requires that scale of thinking and that scale of capacity from governments to be able to recognize how we move forward in democracies. And building the social neurological capacity of a society to make this transition for me will be really critical. And that isn't just, that that's a really strategic decision. And then we can make societal transitions, I think, at pace, much faster than autocracies. We will make them in real rapid paces. The problem is our social covenant is no longer functioning to allow us to make the transition. And that, I think, is a real issue. I, I love all of that. Crumbs, this is a lovely chat. Uh... I, it, couldn't we step even a step further backward? Is, isn't, isn't this short-term perspective that we're existing and abiding in now just built into the very type of democracy that we have? It's, and I know that seems like, like the type of conversation that's impossible to really imagine, but in many ways, the, the, the type of representative democracy and these people who clearly not answering to their constituents but are answering to other forces and and only really trying to regain power rather than think long term is at the heart of it and then also i think much more alarmingly those those politicians that do try and talk about things in the fairest of ways whereby they actually try and point out that we are also structurally part of the problem internationally by our own pretty dastardly acts through tax havens or whatever to try and really find equity globally as well as as nationally no one's willing to vote those people in so in some ways 
we're all complicit in the type of hierarchical, power-based, destructive society that, that, that we're abiding in. And, uh, and it goes from the top all the way to the bottom. And it, to me, it's all about the type of hierarchical, power-based, patriarchal society that we're in. And, that, and, and until we really look at that and admit that and acknowledge that at its deepest level, we're, we're never going to find a way out. Sure, I actually wanted to come back a little bit to, you mentioned um, your work with kind of B Corps, and I wanted to think at um, a practical level about the work that you're doing and how you're bringing some of these thinkings, thinking patterns and thoughts into the B Corp industry. And, and also for, for the layman who's never heard of a B Corp before, like what is it and, and what are you doing um, and what does it mean and how does it fit into, into the role of kind of reimagining society? Well, thank you for the question, and uh, and I think um, I'm, I'm I'm happy to share a little bit about about the B Corp movement. And actually, this has been an interesting week for the B Corp movement when it comes to some of these um, structural um, pieces that that have been brought up. Um, for, so so for for people who aren't familiar with B Corps, um, uh, there are for profit businesses that have been certified to meet the very highest standard in terms of both how they operate. So, in other words, how they treat their workers, their governance how they engage with their local communities and, and how they think about the environment, um, as well as what they're in the business of doing. So in other words, their impact business model, what sort of impacts positive are being created um, through that, that business model. Um, and if you, if you reach a certain sort of threshold of points on the assessment, then, then you're invited to do the next step of the certification journey, which is to actually um, legally um, state that the director's duties of your company are to equally consider shareholders and stakeholders. So in other words, it becomes part of their, their duty <laughs> is not just to maximize a return for a shareholder in the short term, but they are obligated to be considering wider stakeholders in their decisions and, and therefore the different time horizons that I think have come up in, in this discussion. And, and just to say, again, this is like legally art, like articulated in your governing documents. So it's sort of hardwired in. Um, so this movement has been growing um, since it started over a decade ago. In the UK, we've been in place for just over five years now. Um, and we have some extraordinary businesses that represent this movement and this community. And, and the reason why I think I, it's interesting for this conversation is these are businesses that are sort of walking the talk and showing it's possible to be both a business and to create positive impact um, and be, you know, addressing uh, the problems that are facing our planet, you know, people and our planet through through the harnessing the ingenuity and the innovation that exists within business so that it truly can be a force for good. Now, when it comes to the systems conversations that we've been, been having today, um, you know, just this week, we had a, a parliamentary reception about a campaign um, that BLABUK has been working on for quite a few years, and it's called the Better Business Act. And really, it represents a coalition of now almost 500 businesses that have signed up to say, let's change the company law. Let's change Section 172. I don't want to geek out too much here on particular codes within the Company Act, but, but how can we make it um, explicit that all businesses should operate with these duties for their directors to equally consider shareholders and stakeholders? Um, now, it's not saying that every business will be a B Corp, but to have that legal 
um, it, you know, legal articulation of what they're in the business of doing, the purpose of the business, and how those directors are making decisions um, feels to be a, a way of addressing these systemic challenges that are um, that are facing the UK. Again, the hope is if we can do this in the UK, um, we would hope that this would be something that could be adopted by other countries around the world. Um, there are jurisdictions um, in the US and some other countries that have created sort of an optional, uh, what they call benefit corporation structure. Um, but the UK would be the first where this would be hardwired into our overall company act. So that's one uh, approach that we are um, really leaning into to engage in sort of these sort of more systemic infrastructural changes that we know is needed. So again, so we can truly harness the power of business to be a force for good and solve <laughs> some of the problems that we know are facing planet and people on it rather than creating them. Does, does your organization ever talk about accountability? I mean, I've, I've been quite interested in the ecocide movement whereby CEOs could be personally held responsible for um, disastrous behavior on the environment, disaster, terrible. It's like um, it, it, some sort of destructive behavior, sorry, on the environment. And, uh, and that that would radically alter the way that people would make decisions because they're, they're, they're not in, in acting with impunity as they are now. Um, and uh, I find that, yeah. To be quite a simple and easy uh, answer on paper, obviously in practice it's not being adopted. But um, is that something that you're, you 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 are talking about and thinking about? Is there a, do you see any headway in that as uh, in your discussions with in these sorts of areas? Yeah, no. Again, I, I think it's about really, um, you know, recognizing what the director's duties are and how they are making deci decisions and considering these elements. And, and I think your point about um, accountability, I mean, one of the key points to this is being able to report on um, your impact. That's sort of an, an element of what we are, are putting forward as one of our key principles within the Better Business Act. Um, but I'd also say that I think there is, you know, something about the rules, you know, changing the rules of the game, reimagining, you know, going to the, the you know, the, the, the topic of our podcast, and, you know, how do we reimagine um, what the rules are for businesses? Um, but I don't at all think we do that without recognizing the importance of culture. And so this is where I think um, rules, regulation, um, law paired with culture um, become a really quite critical force um, jointly. And so this is where, you know, for me, the definition of culture that always resonates, it's, you know, well, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's one favorite, favorite famous quote. But the other one is, um, you know, culture is what, no, what people do when nobody's looking. And so I think very much when it comes to these these elements that you've brought up, Bruce, I think absolutely encouraging and engaging directors to make these decisions, recognizing the impacts that are, are being had and making the positive decisions that are about recognizing the future we want to create um, is really important and making sure that we've got an overall culture um, that is is embracing and supporting the decisions these directors are making. Bruce, did I answer your question? Uh, you absolutely did. Yeah, I was, I, I'm just... I guess I I guess I'm not fully aware of what the impacts of what you're talking are when they when they trickle down into society and so I I my question was only aimed at the, the sort of top level but I be I would also as a further question be interested for you to explain a little bit more how you see that that would um, have, affect change uh, as you know in society as a whole the type of stuff you're talking about. 
one thing I'd just like to come in on, just on that point, though, is um, so companies, the idea of companies, which was about insulating investors from the risks of operation, is relatively a new phenomenon in the history of humanity. This idea of insulation of of the the corporate in vitro. That's I think it was born out of royal charters, which which were necessary for fishing, or not for fishing for actually. Sorry, my complete thought. They were necessary. They were part of the global uh, uh, sort of uh, set Portuguese expansion, and the royal charter was constructed there. That royal charter great gave. Uh, immunity to the ship's captain for the loss of uh, um, whether it is uh, loss of goods on a on a trade to the investors that separation and also gave immunity to the to the investors from the liability of those losses right so, so but partnership as a vehicle which actually has a completely different liability structure because it does do exactly what you say Bruce is actually being undervalued and underplayed. So I think we should be we should be massively differentially taxing corporate structures. So if you choose to be an limited liability company, you should pay a significantly higher tax because you're creating risk for the world that isn't that is not going to be as accurately managed as if you're a partner because you're legally responsible. So I think there's and so there is a corporate structure conversation which I think goes beyond sort of where we are. And I think there's some fundamental questions about whether we're talking about independence and silo value versus interdependent value. I think that's going to change corporate structures. And the other thing I would say is more and more it's clear that I think we're looking at boundless corporations and means of organizing rather than bounded means of corporate organizing. So the kind of structures around that is really key. So I think we have to have a much deeper root and branch transformation that's going to be required. And I think, you know, we're sort of, for example, the pay differential in dark matter is one to two. One to two. Not one to 300, not to one to 5,000, one to two. Right? And, you know, I think we have to start to think much more. And an employment contract, we're trying to move away from even hours as a conversation, but actually talking about the care people take. I think one of our policies is that you take a minimum of four weeks of self-care Right. There's not a maximum, it's a minimum, because the emphasis is on how do you create the environments for self-care. So I think we need more radical transformation about this stuff, and radical transformation of what is the role of pay. Is pay compensation for your time so you can be free outside it? Is pay um, a mechanism to liberate you to do the work? Is pay a transaction for you to feel incentivized? These are different ideas of pay and wage. And we're doing a lot of work around this and beyond the rules, if you if you want to look at the hashtag, around this sort of stuff. So I think there's, there's structural work that needs to be done, which has to be deeply progressive to deliver us that kind and careful world. I wanted to, I suppose, well, think of, of pay and, and debt. I wanted to actually bring this conversation slightly towards um, a concept which, Indy, you, you mentioned in an article I think you wrote late last year, um, about ecological debt and extraction. I'm sure, Bruce, you can probably speak to this. Well, all of you can speak to this as well. Um, is, you know, in our, in our current structures, we're obviously taking so much more than we're giving back. We have a huge debt and it's, it's not sustainable across every part of, of society. Um, I wondered if you could kind of speak to our accountability to the ecosystems and what 
individuals, businesses, governments, all elements of society and kind of reimagining how we move forward. Like how can we interoperate better with, with the ecological systems that are part of life that we need, <laughs> quite frankly. I'm, I'm happy to start. I, th I think Bruce will give some really beautiful answers on this, I hope, as well as a follow-on and Shah as well, because I know you've been doing some amazing work around this. So I, I think for me, there's a fundamental question about our relationship with the world. Currently, our relationship with the world, whether it's the future, whether it's nature, whether it's materials, or whether it's even actually other people, is that of control. We seek to control the future. We seek to control and own nature. We seek to, and that turns nature into a resource. Right? So we, we treat nature through a resource lens. And that is the idea of ownership. Like, let's also just extend it. The idea of, of ownership is quasi the enslavement of a piece of land to one person's needs. Right? I'm going to reef. It's the enslavement of a piece of land to one person's needs. That land has bees on it, has uh, ecological soil systems that have taken thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years to develop. And actually, we allow it to be enslaved to the unitary purpose of a moment in time in history. And this is about how we've constructed the world. We had a logic structure which said property ownership is the most effective means of organizing value. Now, I'm not saying that that, was, that may have been almost the perfect thinking for a perceived infinite world. But in an interdependent world, we need a completely different model of thinking. We need to recognize, and we're seeing this happen already, whether it's New Zealand, a river in New Zealand being made self-sovereign, or whether it's actually a forest, forest in uh, British, uh, British Columbia being made self-sovereign. This is about actually building the, the sovereignty of nature as an identity in itself. And that opens up all sorts of secondary questions, which I think are really profound, but I think it's an intermediate step, which is we need to recognize nature as, as, uh, as us being in relationship to, in treaty with, not to be ownership of. And that's a foundational transformation. And I think we can legally start to construct quite different relationships. And that requires us to have a new type of, like I say, I think it's this is not just a, uh, it's not a control ownership model. It's to be in relationship with model. And that's a deep structural transformation. And you can start to do that. We're doing a piece of work. We're doing lots of work around self-sovereign forests and how do you actually build a capacity for self-sovereignty in, in a forest and how do you grow that? And there's really complex problems here because a tree is not an object. A tree is, is part of a system of, uh, of, of roots and uh, mycelium networks. It's not an object, it's part of an ecosystem. So all of our thinking, which has been constructed around objecthoods, becomes problematized when we start to think in a new way around this relationship model. Now, this stuff, in my view, hybridizes how technology is opening up options, as well as actually indigenous worldviews. So there's a new hybridity possible that is, I think, the real magic moment here. So when we start to construct this new relationship, we can look both backwards and forward into quite a fundamentally different worldview. And that, I think, is a, the, the way to respond to it and a practical sense as well. So, you know, we're, we're exploring self-sovereign houses where a house becomes uh, self-sovereign, a public interest uh, instrument as opposed to a private en entity. How does a house react to all the ecological services and benefits that it operates in, whether it's hosting um, 
magpies and other things. So you start to think fundamentally differently about how we build and construct the world. I've spoken too long, so <laughs> thank you. That was amazing, Indy. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful words. Um, yeah, I mean, so much in that that I, that I could respond to. Uh, I think the, um, the hybridizing of the indigenous viewpoint and our own is, is kind of perhaps where I'll start. And then this idea of thinking differently is, well, I guess, one of the things that I've learned, uh, especially with my privileged time with indigenous peoples, is that they definitely do indeed think differently. And, and, a, and a big aspect of that thinking is actually feeling. It's not, we, we, we spend a lot of our time in our heads and they're actually much more embodied in their relationship. They're, they're in their hearts, they're in their stomachs, they're in their senses, and that's a daily exercise for them. And, um, and so their relationship with that tree isn't just looking at it in a sort of utilitarian way that this is useful for the future generations and it's a, just a logical thought process. It's actually, they feel pain if that tree is mis, mis, mistreated. They have a sense of empathy that extends out beyond themselves into their community, but also into the community of other than human community of the, the landscape that, that, that they live in, as well as also having a rational understanding because they see it on a daily basis that if you do destroy the environment, you are also destroying your own lives because they haven't exported that as externalities over the mountains. They, they have a direct relationship with it. So they know that um, they, their well-being is directly proportional to the well-being of the environment that holds them. And that's another thing that we've lost is that we, we clearly don't really pay much attention to the labels of where things come from and, and the you know, blood on my hands when I fill my car with petrol and all the other myriad things that we do on a daily basis, the, the net result of the cost of those things. We're not paying the cost. We're not understanding the cost. We're not feeling it. We're not feeling it. Um, and I think that's a big one. And, and the feeling, if I may riff, goes on to what we were talking about earlier with privilege as well, and how different people have have um, have have, um, have existed and lived and or, or thrived or whatever the relationship is that people have have been through this recent time that we're in now. It's, um, I feel incredibly privileged because I have landscape around me. I can go walking every day. I can be in nature. And that's a, an amazing privilege. And many, many people, if you're in a, in a bedsit or a, a flat in, a, in an urban space, won't have had that. And another privilege that I have is having had opportunity to learn um, certain tools to enable me to be able to cope with that. And this comes on to what I was talking about feeling is that um, – uh, it's a bit of a tangent, I apologize, but it, it just came to me when I was talking about how it is that the tribal people are able to feel the forest and have this sense of empathy is because they have practices that allow for that, which I think we also have lost over time. Certain spiritual traditions are trying to bring those, or have, have always been trying to bring those practices back, meditation being an obvious one, um, as well as plant medicines and what have you. These do allow for us to enter into a space where we can feel more deeply and those of us who've had those tools have been able to exist in this pre -re recent time because those tools also allow us to be much more comfortable with ourselves in these difficult times um and uh and so yeah uh, I, I i lost my thread there a little but like yeah i think that that these these tools and methodologies if they if they can be 
you know, and they're, they're, they're gaining they're gaining a lot of uh, notoriety because because they're being shown to 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 work in our society. But I'd be really interested to see what's going to happen as we come out of this this latest lockdown to see just how many people will have actually reinforced traumas and some people have had the privilege to have actually gone through some deep healing and that will depend on whether or not they've had those tools accessible and 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 have had had a knowledge of those tools and the, and, it, and and to me this sort of deep psychological healing that we need to go through individually and as a society is is is, is central to so much of this and i know this what i'm just saying is a bit bit garbled but it to me it all does fit together somehow it's like I need to feel more deeply in order to be able to feel the empathy for the for the environment comes only when I'm I'm willing and able to lift that lid off my own subconscious and start having a look at myself. I have to be able to feel all the pain of my own personal trauma in order to be able to and deal with that in order to also be able to feel this love and empathy for that which is around me. And that's a journey that we all need to go on. And for many people, it's really difficult because, of course, lots of people are carrying an immense amount of trauma and they'll do anything rather than go there. And society isn't telling them that they need to go there. So we just carry on consuming the world, anything to distract ourselves from actually the job of being able to be still and be calm. And that would, if only people would, um, if, if only the narratives of our society would allow that to be more um more understood and more recognized then it wouldn't we would also not struggle so much in these diff- really difficult times when we have to withdraw into our small spaces um and so sorry that was a bit garbled but i think you can kind of see where i'm going with that it's like um yeah and a need for some some uh, psychological healing is is central to all of this too i think i i just have to say i i am loving this conversation. And I am so excited to explore more about the work both of you are doing in these incredible spaces and what are sort of the tools and the practices. Um, I I feel like a a part of all of this is about education. And when thinking about what we can reimagine, it's how do we reimagine the systems so that the young people today that are going to be inheriting the challenges, um, that that lay in front of us. Um, how how can we channel some of this incredible wisdom, this experience, um, in such a way that it becomes really quite embedded in the processes that our young people go through? Um, and and I shouldn't say just young people; I mean all of us. Um, but I just I, I feel I feel a lot for the children today, um, and how 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 if if this is if this is and it is the transition that must happen in order for us to build uh, a, a world and a sense of interdependence, not just one another, but with our planet and the environment within it. Um, this is going to be a period of transition because the systems that we have in place today are, are not going to be the systems we have in the future. So how do we bring the young people that will be feeling, leading, experiencing that transition so acutely um, on, on this journey? So they they welcome they welcome it they understand it um and and they can they can champion some of these things we've talked about uh, that's sort of a, a question i guess but it's certainly part of uh, a really important part of this reimagination um that i i think we all need to to think about can i just on that can i just come in and say 
I suppose if you're looking at a transition of the next 10, 15 years, sure. I think everyone that's alive now has to be in that journey. And I wonder whether the segmentation of saying, whether it's young people or, I wonder whether that segmentational view has helped us. It's a kind of honest question, whether that actually we need to just take a whole societal view, recognizing that pretty much most of the people alive today are all going to have to go. And I, Bruce, I really appreciated your, your point here. We have to undo the trauma. We have to create the, the, the space for reconciliation in, in a deep sense. So I wonder whether we need to stop. And again, feel free to disagree. I just wonder whether that segmentation is part of the problem. And actually, whether we do need to just focus on a societal combat, because I think, you know, we're going to have to see 40 year olds, 50 year olds, 60 year olds who are going to live hopefully till their 90s be part of this transition. And and how do we build the politics of this kind of intergenerational capacity, which I think is going to be a different type of politics, and a different type of play? I don't know, just to put that on the table. So if I may respond, and I know we're (laughs) coming short on time, but I I would really like to respond to this one. And you said the word, Indy, actually, that I think is really critical is these intergenerational, right? I I actually totally agree. Everyone needs to be on this journey. And we need to be creating the conditions for much more tuned in intergenerational conversations. Because let's be honest, the temporal, the longitudinal of what we're going through, I mean, we've talked about the long-term nature of things, will require us to all be on this journey and to be listening to both the elder wisdom that exists and channeling the energy and the ideas of the new (laughs) that's coming through, the young people. But I'd actually like to use this, you know, maybe final moment just to to reflect on actually a theme that I've, I've been writing notes on throughout the course of this conversation, which is I don't think, well, no, let me frame that in a positive way. I think one of the things that we'll have to do as part of an overall mindset, as part of this transition, is is move to a place where we're thinking very much in a both and mindset rather than one or the other or either or. And so in, in particular with this, I would say absolutely indeed, everybody needs to be a part of it. And I think we need to also appreciate that there will be children who have different capacities to understand and different things that they can bring to this transition than perhaps those who are at the end of their journey and have had different life experiences. So we need to create a holistic set of transitions for everybody. And I think we have to recognize and respect different places, different people are coming from. Um, But also, you know, we've talked about the global challenges and then local. And again, I don't think it's one or the other. It's how do we hold this capacity to do the both and. I know one of the, 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 the opportunities, the challenges that I face is trying to recognize also how to hold the ability to be hopeful for what we can achieve when we think about this reimagination with the urgency of the action that needs to be taken. And that kind of picks up on the, yes, we must be thinking and acting and planning and loving with this future in mind. And we need to be acting now because we are in an emergency. So again, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of an overall reflection, I think, of a mindset of both and that I feel we need to hold when tackling a lot of these quite critical and, you know, really worldly important questions that, that we've addressed today. But just to build on that, the, and so I, I don't know the answer to this, by the way, 
but the and is about two objects, right? Two ideas that are working simultaneously. Maybe there is a new language which is not about the two, the, the additionality, this and that, but a new language of relationality, which actually opens up a different way of seeing this. So I'm just kind of um, just putting that down because I, I don't know the answer to this, but there's something about, you're, you're absolutely right, this there's there's a new language and taxonomy and we know for example Bruce you, you'll you'll know this better than I will but again indigenous languages many indigenous languages are entirely verb based they're not noun based they're not object based so they have a completely different relationship to the world so I wonder whether we can be really start to become really intentional of going from additionalities to new rela- relationalities and that's kind of additionality is really powerful because it's moved us away from single models to a, to a new model. And what that language structure, I think, is a deep a deep code innovation that's required at the societal level. But thank you so much for that. You're absolutely right. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess just to finish, um, part of what I'm trying to do in my life now, having been a filmmaker for so long, is um, to actually be the change. And part of that being the change is... Um, bringing in so many of the lessons that I've learned. So uh, um, ownership, uh, power, hierarchy, all these sorts of things, trying to live in community where those things, we're reevaluating them. And even as you say there with language, I'm, I'm, I'm checking myself every time and I say my house. It's, it's not my house. It's the house I live in and it's our house or the house that we're all living in together. And, and these sorts of things on a daily basis, just trying constantly to to just yeah it, it, every level of my being reimagine how could this be better um, and so no hierarchy it's like we're, we're all in this together and how how are we going to you know there's difference it's not that there's it's not that there's sameness it's, there's equality but there's difference and respect and, a, and an enjoyment and celebration of difference but at the same time everyone's valued equally and this is the type of society that that I've experienced in the world and that could come back, but it needs to have lived examples, I think. And that's kind of um, the, 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 the place that I'm playing in now, um, very embryonically, I must say. And also with, with a great deal of difficulty because it means undoing everything. But, uh, but I, I totally love what you say about um, the language and everything. I mean, it, it has to be a full body shift, I think, and, and that's the work that's needed. Wonderful. So we're a little bit over time, um, but I just, I just think this discussion has been wonderful. It's funny because at the start, I felt like we were starting to touch on binary things, but I love how we've brought it all back together under this connectivity. Um, you know, we were talking about themes of um, being kind of de- interdependent, also self-sufficient, and then also grounded, and so many kind of different themes. And I think, um, oh, I hope that every individual who hears this will kind of go away and think about their role in the future as we come out of lockdown. I mean, even so, Bruce, you mentioned earlier there, kind of, oh, is it like living in flats in London? But actually, at London National Park City, we think a lot about every single green space that is around us and how we harness that. And my hope is that as we come out of lockdown, those green spaces that have supported us through lockdown and being our little bit of nature and our little bit of comfort will, will continue to be kind of cared for. And hopefully the sort of litter-strewn streets that we've seen of late um, won't continue. Um, 
But I hope that everyone will kind of go away and, and look into all of your bodies of work because I think you're all such uh, fascinating people. Um, and what remains to be said is thank you so much. And I hope that we can continue these conversations in other spectrums and other fields. Um, uh, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend and take care. <laughs>